As we had mentioned earlier, when you were coming in, and for those of you at home who are joining us, we're going to be in this book called Foundations. It's a discipleship Bible study, and we're going through it with the idea that what we can do is we can train ourselves in the Word of God so we can better train other people. And so a lot of you already know this material, but this one, this is a, really a helpful book. And so if you have the book, that follow along, write in things, so that that would be helpful for you to be able to train somebody else, write down your questions, write down your notes, and when we're doing the slides, and just remind you how the slide's set up, uh, sometimes I'm going to be quoting exact paragraphs out of the slides, sometimes we're not. And usually when we're in a specific page where there's things to fill out, you'll see in the bottom corner of the right hand a little green teardrop, and that will give you the idea of what page we're working on. And so in this whole discipleship idea that we're trying to make sure that we are trained so we can train others, the whole idea is reach out and help somebody, and to be able to do Bible study. What a profitable, ideal time to get together with Bible studies because a lot of people don't want to be in large groups. But you could do this Bible study with an individual, one-on-one, or a family-on-a-family. And so we're in this booklet. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, an extended passage this evening. It's not going to be the notes that are in the book. I'm going to add some things to it for your benefit and uh, then to give you foundation that you can use in talking to others. But uh, here's where we're at. We're in this book. We're in chapter 8. In this book, what we've done so far, we've talked about the Bible, we've talked about salvation, we've talked about eternal security, we've talked about the doctrine of confessing sin, we talked about baptism, we talked about communion, we talked about prayer. The last subject that we spend a large amount of time on is church, and just laying foundation, making sure that we understand what does the Bible teach in this regard, and then how can we train, teach somebody and train somebody along that line. And uh, again, if you came walking in, don't have one of those booklets, Greg, get up, feel free to go and get one so you can follow along and have the notes and keep up with us. So we're in pages 121 to 139, and if you're using at home, some of you are using the pages we sent on um, on email, those may be a little bit different just because they were from the first edition and we are in the second edition of this booklet. And so let me just start with this idea. Any of you recall hearing about this guy, George C. Parker? He was very famous, or should I say infamous, that years ago he was one of the America's greatest con men. What he would do is he would, once they got some of these major sites, he started his career on selling things. He would sell things that weren't his. He sold the Statue of Liberty. He sold Grant's tomb. He sold the Brooklyn Bridge. And he had a lot of people buy into his, and he was so persuasive that there's records of police having to stop people who have bought into the, the let's say, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge. They have bought a portion, and numbers of times those people were setting up toll booths on the road and going to charge people, and the police had to come, and they had the documentation. We own the bridge. We own this lane, and stuff like that. And he was really, really good at it. Um, and so he got himself, obviously, after he had his office set up, and he was you know, warned several times and fined a number of times. They finally got down to the matter, and they put him in prison for the last eight years of his life. But he made a comment that I found very, very interesting and challenging. He said that the reason that he could do this is because that what happened is people were so gullible. People would fall for this idea that I can buy a portion of the statue or a Grant's tomb. What would you do with Grant's tomb? But they bought it, and people, and his whole, his whole idea was people are gullible. You know who is a better con artist that knows people are gullible is Satan. He has been in the job for, well, since the beginning of time. 
since the beginning of, that, of our human existence, that he has been around and he is clever. And what are we warned? That we are not to be ignorant of his devices. We're to be on guard because he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay, and so we know that we have an enemy who will, who will be very persuasive, but he plays upon our gullibility, our tendencies to listen to temptation. And so what we want to talk about is temptation, and we're going to talk in this format of how it was laid out in this book, and I'm going to be adding some things to it and just talking about how do we deal with temptation. Here's where we want to go over the next two, three weeks. We want to get to how to resist it. But in order to know how to resist, be not ignorant of his devices. We've got to know how it works so that we recognize that we've got a problem. Some of us, we don't recognize that at times. We don't see you know, that this is really, really, really serious. And so we want to back up and do a little bit of, well, of beginning material. And we want to start with this thought. So if I'm doing a Bible study with you, Bible study with somebody who's a baby Christian, I want them to understand this. Holy living is a major theme of the, of the Bible. That God frequently has said this idea that we are to be holy. Here's a passage. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is our hope of the rapture. Every man that has this hope in him does what? He purifies. Okay, he's going to be trying to be as pure as Christ, holy living. Here's another text. Follow peace with all men and holiness. Another text, Ephesians, according as he has chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be, this is God's predestinated plan for you and me, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's God's desire for us, that we would be holy. Let's, let's take up in First Thessalonians. I think I said chapter 1, uh, chapter 4, please, starting with verses 1 through 7. First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. So follow along as I read, and then we're going to make some observations. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us, how you ought to walk and to please God. So you would abound more and more. For you know what, com <clears throat> what commandments we gave you by the Lord. For this is the will of God. Even your, I have sanctification. Does anybody have a different translation? Do we all have that same idea? What's sanctification mean? Okay. Okay, let's getting back to that idea of holiness, growing in Christ, <clears throat> that same idea, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his body, his vessel, in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified, for God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Okay, we have that at the end. Let's make some observations. Let's just looking at the text and see, is this true or isn't this true? Is it true that the Holy Spirit and the Apostle are begging believers to please the Lord? I beseech you, I exhort you, please make this a point in your life that you live in a way that pleases the Lord. This is to be done in our walk, our daily living. Not just on Sundays, but in our daily, how we walk. And remember, that's that idea of how we act, how we communicate. This lifestyle is to be every day, and it's to be increasing. He says that you may abound more and more. 
so that you and I in our lives become more and more Christ-like, more and more pure in what we do. It's God's will, okay, we saw that in verse 3. It's God's will that we were to be sanctified. We are to live a holy lifestyle. This includes even in the private areas of our life, the areas of sexuality where he talks about fornication. That even in this area, that we are maintaining a holiness in an area that is not public. So we're talking about what we do even in private fashion and with others. Then we will make this another observation. Holiness includes using our bodies in a way that are honorable towards others, but mostly honorable to the Lord. This is a definition of what he's talking about, sanctification. The idea of holiness, this is what we are called to. Let's go a little bit further in the text. This was to be true of every one of us. Verse 4, where he makes that observation in the passage where he says that every one of you should know how to possess your vessel. Let's take another truth. Holiness includes rejecting the immoral lifestyle and standards of the world around us, where he says, not in the concupiscence of the flesh, and he talks about not as the Gentiles which know not God. He's saying, put off. Okay, doesn't this remind you of what we've been preaching in Colossians? Put off and put on. Okay, that same concept. We are not to cave in to the persuasions or the pressures of the world around us. Let's make this observation. If I'm doing a Bible study, I would ask the young convert, does the world, does does the society as a whole want holiness or do your own thing? And we're going to say the pressure is to... Do your own thing, okay? And so we're not supposed to cave into that pressure. We're to be different than the world around us. We're to be sanctified. The reasons for holiness, and they're twofold in this text, the reason for the holiness are these two facts. One, God has called us to holiness. Verse 7, God has called you and I who are believers that we are to be holy even as he is holy. That's the calling. That's, that's what he has, he has asked us, commanded us, called us to live up to that standard. There's another reason in that same verse. If you look at the verse, it says that the other reason is God is a what? He's an avenger of those who would defraud, those who would do harm. He disciplines unholy actions. Even those private actions of defrauding another individual, the private actions of immorality in the sexual areas. And so he makes it very clear that he says, I've warned you of this. You who are believers, I'm warning you. This is not what God wants you to be involved in. God wants you to be holy, not unholy. Be different. Be sanctified. That's why I saved you. Not so you can live in the muck and the mire of the world, but that you can become more like Christ and be a light. A light can't shine if it's dirty. So we have to keep that reflection of Christ where it's very, very clean. This is what he's calling us to. This is a theme of the Bible is believers living a holy life. Well, we're back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He mentions this in your first paragraph of your notes. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, he's quoting from the book of Leviticus, it is all the way in the Old Testament, carries to the New, be holy for I am holy. Let's pick up in your booklet. Oh, oh and I wanted to add this. It quotes this one passage, but the next verse is very important. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your journeying through this life in fear. In fear of what? That God can discipline and will discipline his children who do wrong. 
And out of respect for the Lord, we try to do that which is right. And we put off unholy living. So we're into your paragraph that's in your book where it says, per the verse we just quoted, God has called you to be holy in all manner of conversation, that idea of all manner of lifestyle. When you read in the King James that idea of conversation, it's more than your speech. It's how you conduct yourself in everyday life. So we're, we're using the modern definition of conversation, which years, a couple hundred years ago, it meant more of of lifestyle, we, we are understanding that, that it's more than just speech. This verse quotes in Leviticus, how does God require us to be holy? Well, we would write in, you could put in however you want to phrase it, we are to be holy like God is holy. In other words, we're not supposed to tolerate anything. We're supposed to make him our ultimate goal or standard. Are we going to be able to achieve it totally? We know we can't. We won't be totally pure until we get out of this world, but we're supposed to make this our standard. His holiness is to be our motivation, our standard, our goal, to be like him, to respond like him, to conduct ourselves. It's what we talked about this morning, that when you are frustrated, that you say, I want to respond the way Christ would respond, that I let him umpire his, his standard, umpire and dictate, I don't get mad, I don't cuss, I don't curse, but live up to that, to look like our Father more and more every single day, to reflect Him, to give that appearance. This means we are not to conform to the world in any way, but to be distinct, as he's talked about in the previous verse, in verse uh, of First Peter, if you want to look it up and see in the text, it talks about the idea, don't conform to the world, that same idea put off. This involves having a healthy fear of the Lord. So we got all these concepts going. You're trying to encourage that young believer. And you may want to encourage and go over this idea, is it appropriate for believers to have a fear of God? It is appropriate. Okay? But we have to make sure we define what is the fear of God. Is the fear that we're thinking he's going to wipe us out? And we don't want to, and we're just absolutely terrified. That's not the fear we're talking about. But we're talking about a fear that understands we respect him, but we also know that he will correct us if we do wrong. And so it's a healthy fear of God. And you can develop that with that person a little bit more. Let's pick up the next paragraph. The, the whole living our life of purity is considered quaint and puritanical by many. And I would, I would suggest that in our society, if you talk about holy living, you're going to be looked at kind of awkwardly. A lot of coworkers, neighbors are going to look like, you know, where did, what planet did you come from? And so it's not the popular theme anymore, but let's jump over to Ephesians chapter 4. This is the sister passage, the twin passage of what we've been doing in the book of Colossians, but I want you to go there. It's in your notes, and this would be an easy passage for you to develop with your friends, the ones you're doing a Bible study. And in this passage, this is that same thing of putting off and putting on we've been talking about in Colossians, but it's elaborated in a longer sense. And in this verse, we're going to jump down verse 22 and 24 in particular, Catch what you read, okay? That you put off concerning the former lifestyle, conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and, be, and then you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness, and what else did he say? Do you have it there? True holiness. Okay, we're back to holiness. And so he, we're going to ask this question. It is inevitable that we will be tempted. So how do we stay holy? And so that's going to be the theme of it. And one of the ways of doing it, and it's not in your notes, but I think it's worth your while to be able to understand that context. Look at verse 17 and the following. In this passage, he is saying to them, 
This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of your mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of the heart, who being past feeling, they've you know, passed the conviction idea, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness. In other words, they're just you know, living and going and doing their own thing, and it's controlling them. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard of him, you've been taught by him, as the truth is in Christ, put off concerning the former lifestyle, the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created unto holiness. And then he starts getting very practical. Put away lying, he says in verse 25. Be angry, verse 26. Be angry and sin not. He says in verse 28, those that steal, don't steal. But instead, and he gives you the put off, put on, and he keeps on working all the way through. In verse 29, put off the bad words that you used to say, and instead put on edifying. You'll stop grieving the Holy Spirit, put away the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor, and instead be kind, forgiving, even as Christ. So he works through the passage. And again, these are things we've already mentioned. Pure living is learned. It's learned and it requires effort. Make sure you teach that young convert that. Make sure you tell them that if this is something you're going to have to grow in, but it won't happen by doing nothing. You have to put effort. You're going to have to discipline yourself. You're going to have to learn to say no to certain things. You know, the change in the lifestyle, it's not something we naturally turn towards. The idea that it requires knowing the Word of God. Remember how he said, you have not so learned Christ You've got to be in the Word of God. Got to be in the Word of God. We're, we'll develop all this more, but it requires ongoing renewing. The battles always start where? With temptation, right here. So we've got to be renewing our mind. And he's assuming that that's what's happening in believers' lives. And it requires that personal effort of putting off, putting on. It takes personal great effort to put on. I, I, I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm just thinking this is the way everybody is just because of my battles. It's, it's so easy in my mind to get upset. It's so easy to just you know, hold an, uh, an angry attitude or bitter attitude. And it's so hard to say, put on forgiveness. It's easy to speak it, but it's hard to do at times. And he says, this requires effort. You've got to be working on it. We must live that idea of the principle of replacement. And it's something that we need to do regularly. It's that verbiage that is, do this all the time, keep on working. So we have all those thoughts that are a lot more than what the book says, but information that you know, as you share with that new convert, you're telling them they're going to be attacked. That just because now you're a child of God doesn't mean it's going to be a life of ease and everything's careful. In fact, I remember when I first got saved. Within the, the first couple of weeks, the first person who did a Bible study with me said, you are going to be tempted to think it didn't work. You're not saved. <clears throat> How can God keep you saved? Because you're going to have guilt, you're going to blow it. You know, and then it was like, what do you mean I'm going to blow it? You mean I'm still going to sin after I got saved? And, and I meant that sincerely when I asked the youth pastor that. Am, am I going to sin after I'm saved? And he gave a real loud, yes, it's going to be there. You're going to struggle. And that was very important because if I hadn't been aware of that, I would have assumed maybe salvation didn't work. It didn't happen. I keep on thinking of what our granddaughter did. Just to, She's been battling with that idea of being saved, being saved. And her comment is, well, when I asked Jesus to forgive me and take away all my sin, 
He didn't do it. And I was like, what do you mean he didn't do it? I still disobey at times. And so when she heard us saying, God will take away your sin, she's thinking, they'll be gone. I'll be no more temptation. And you and I say, that's not the way it works. But in her little mind, and some of us in our big minds, as we first get exposed to the gospel, we need to have that clarity that's given in there. Here we go. In the book, he has a paragraph that talks about the tragedy of sin. And I think this is critical that we make sure that we go through it with that person because this is renewing your mind. Renewing your mind comes back to how do we view sin? How do we look at it? Most believers take temptation lightly because they take sin lightly. I think that's a fair statement that the author of this book put together. Part of the renewing and learning Christ is to understand, accept, and keep in mind what does God say about my sin? What I do, okay? And so we ask the question in this book, why is sin so tragic? And the author gives us several different explanations that you might be wise in expanding upon and explaining to the new convert that even though you're going to heaven, does sin have tragic consequences in our lives? And the answer is yes, yes. Okay, and so we want to remind them that sin offends God. Even the sin of a born-again believer offends God. He quotes in here Psalm 51, and I'm not real sure I understand totally what that verse has to do with it, but if it's a misprint or not. But 51.11 is clear. I'm not so sure about 51.17, where it says in 51.11, Cast me not away from your, fre- your presence. David has a fear that sin could separate him from the Father. Now remember in the Old Testament, they didn't have eternal security concept. But he still is concerned that he would lose fellowship with the Father. And so that idea that, that, that sin can interrupt our fellowship, it can have that consequence, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. That idea, your iniquities have separated you from your father, your sins have hid his face. Okay, that, we know that's true of an unbeliever. But even the believer that God is not pleased He is offended by the sin. So the tragedy of sin is that God is highly offended by it. It grieves him. And the quote that they have in Ephesians 4.30, you know, grieve not the Holy Spirit. By the way, you may want to add this in your notes. Stop is the verbiage. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. It's not don't ever do this. He's talking to believers. He says stop doing this is the command. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. That word grieve means to cause pain or injury to somebody. It is to bring them to tears. It is the idea of, you know, you just devastated your child. You just grieved them or your parent. God feels he is personally hurt when we sin. And in this context, and as Pastor Art gave me the notes that he was studying this and it was so helpful to reflect. If you look at the context Verse 29 and 31, where it's surrounded by grieving the Holy Spirit, it has to do with words we say and with attitudes we have, which in our lives, we often just say, well, words aren't so bad. Attitudes aren't so bad. But this text says that we can definitely hurt God by our attitudes we have for his other kids or the words we say for, towards our brothers and sisters. And so things that we might find acceptable, they still grieve God. They're a terrible offense to him, which brings us to a breaking down the fellowship with the Father. You're talking to a baby Christian. You're trying to get this through to him, that the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
That's the idea that God will not answer my prayers. How can you and I go through the day without having the confidence God's going to answer our prayers? And so we even read about that, that this idea of God being offended. If husbands don't treat their wives right, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, uh, 9 or 7. If they, if they don't treat their wives, uh, if they treat their wives improperly, their prayers will be hindered. And so this whole idea is our sin doesn't break our relationship, we're still his child, but it ruins our fellowship. That he may not continue to be blessing us, he won't hear our prayers, we don't have that closeness to him. And so there's, there's things we give up, tragically we give up. Let's add this, it can destroy the life of the believer. Do you think this is a truism? Can a believer getting in sin destroy his life? Yes. How long does it take to build a reputation, a good reputation? Yeah, all your life. How long does it take to ruin it? Okay, just in a moment. Okay, let's, let's look at this. Then when lust hath conceived, it's, he's writing to believers, it brings forth sin, sin when it is finished, it brings destruction. It brings about death. We know that it separates from God. It can also hurt us. Let's look at two examples, just from your Bible memory. Okay, let's think about this idea that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Let's take two examples of people that we're familiar with, who were believers, and let's just, in our minds, let's remember what did they suffer. Let's do Lot first of all. He is called righteous Lot, born again Lot. Think with me that we could put up here. What destruction, what losses did Lot experience because of his giving into sin? He lost his family. He lost his wife. You want to expand upon family? His daughters, which ones? Did he have only two? He had two that ran out of the city. But you remember he had at least two other daughters because it says he talked to his sons-in-law. And what did they do when he came to them and warned them? They scoffed at him. They scoffed at him. Okay? So he lost, he lost his family. Think about this. How did people respond to Lot? Did he lose reputation? Did he lose influence? I mean, we just think about this whole thing. His whole story. He lost the respect of his son-in-laws. They laughed at him when he warned him. He lost his married daughters in the devastation of the city. He lost his possessions, everything. And he moved to this region. He started living in this region and participating in the region so he could what? Get. Get things. Did he take any of the things with him? No. No. So everything that he thought, he lost his wife. You've already mentioned that. Did he lose his own purity? Disgusting. What, what do we kind of end up reading about? He's in an incestuous relationship with his daughters. They get him drunk. I mean, you, you and I look at the story and you go, yuck. Yuck, absolutely yuck. But how did he get there? Because he started taking several steps towards the plains that were fertile. And looked alluring. And then he's not only pitched his tent that way. Soon he's no longer in a tent. He's living in the city. Okay. And so he's just a tragic story. Okay. And historically are we impressed by Lot? No. In fact what do we often ask? Was Lot really saved? And the only reason we say we know he is. Is because he's called the righteous Lot. Okay. Otherwise, we would question that. Let, let's take David. 
You all know David and Bathsheba. We know the story. David was a man after God's own. Okay, he's the king. He's got everything going for him. He's just, he's been blessed. He's been faithful. He's been serving the Lord. Phenomenal. And then he has his fling with Bathsheba. What did he lose because of that illicit affair and then the murder and the covering it up? What, what things did he lose? They lost the son that she conceived. Okay. What's that? Okay. How did he lose it? To another son. To another son who tries to take his, the thing he considered most precious. He loses his, his kingdom. What else happens to him? Oh, they're, they're a mess. His boy. Do you remember what the one son does? Amnon does to his stepsister, Tamar? He rapes her. Okay? Another immoral act. Did, did David lose influence within the kingdom? Yeah, because some of the people revolt. Has David's reputation been marred in your mind? Yeah, he's forgiven of it. But do we still look and go... David. Yeah, we break it all down. Okay, his son, he lost respect of the others. Amnon rapes Tamar, Absalom. And by the way, they said that you're going to have multiple, the sword's going to stay against your home for a long time. So David suffered tragedy. Tragedy. Why? He gave in to this temptation. And so you and I at times say, well, it won't be that bad. It can be that bad. And the problem we have is when Satan lays out the temptation, he makes it look really good. He makes it look like this is phenomenal. And usually we don't see the dangers inside of it. And so that brings us back to that whole idea that we've got to be careful. I'll tell you a story, okay, that I shared with you a long time back, okay, with some of you will remember it. It's a story, if, if it's, you know, urban legend, I can't, I, I've researched and I can't come up with one way or the other. But if it's the urban legend, it still has impact of this woman who is in the southwest part of the United States, and she is one of the animal lovers of the community. And she just, she's frequently, not only does she have a lot of, of pets at her own place, she picks up strays, she picks up injured animals. And she's driving down the road there in the southwest one evening on her way home from work, and she sees this dog that's by the side of the road that's, that's limping off and she feels so bad for this little chihuahua type dog. So she gets out and the dog collapses. She picks the thing up. She can tell, boy, this is, this looks malnourished. This thing has been injured and it needs a lot of care, but it's just, you know, it's gone comatose. So she takes it home and she tries to wake it up to feed it. She tries to clean it up and she's coddling this thing and giving it TLC that evening. And then she even puts a little box there with some water and her cats are over here who are hissing and, and really reacting against it. She tells them to behave and she goes to bed. Well, she sleeps pretty soundly, but early in the morning, all of a sudden, she's woken by this fray of, of loud noise. She runs out there, and her cat is laying there, and there's blood all over. And she sees the Chihuahua dog laying there, and there's blood all over. And it looks like they've had the you know, world's greatest fight going on in her house, and they both lost, and she grabs them. She calls her vet, says, I'll meet you at the, at the uh, place. And so he, she gets there, and he takes her cat, first of all, and tries to take care of 
the cat a little bit, and again, the cat isn't moving, it's out cold, and the doctor, you know, says it'll, it'll survive, but boy, did it get into a bad fight, and he said, what did it get a fight in? Well, it got into a fight with this chihuahua dog. The doctor takes one look at the chihuahua dog and grabs one of his, his instruments there and starts beating on the dog. And she is screaming and yelling and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop it, stop it, stop it. She says, this poor little chihuahua. And he says, it's not a chihuahua. It's a Brazilian water rat. And it carries tremendous infection with it. And she was coddling this thing. The same thing happens with people who say it's not that bad of a sin. It's not that bad. I'll, I'll just kind of work it through. And it's dangerous. It carries infection. It carries disease. Renewing our mind is understanding that temptation is really, really dangerous. And that's why I said this morning, this lesson is supposed to be for new converts. It's for us who are old, old in the Lord. We need to remember that we, even in our besetting sins, they offend God, they grieve God, they are a problem and we need to address them. And resist as much as we possibly can. So let's understand temptation. And in this passage, he's going to take us into the book of James. Jump over there. Because in the book of James, there's some material that you have to write in your Bible. And you have to clarify some of the definition that's going to be talked about in James chapter 1. If you've never had to do this before, make sure you do it tonight. Mark it down so you clearly understand and teach that person in the Bible study that in the Bible when it's talking temptation, the same word in James chapter 1, he's talking about two different things. And so let's get to that passage. Scripture talks about two different types of temptation. That's the word in the King James that he uses in James 1. In James 1, verses 2 through 5, if you're there, follow along. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. If you think that refers to temptations to do sin, you don't count it all joy. And he goes on, he makes this comment, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, lets patience have her perfect work, that you may be mature and entire, wanting nothing, and if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That temptation is different than what we read about later in the passage when he says in verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted of, uh, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by, with evil, neither tempts he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And the reason that this is so important, it's the same word in the original language. Temptation that's talked about in the early part of the passage is the same word talked about in the later part of the passage. But he's talking about two different ideas. Okay, And so in the first part of the verses, when he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, he's talking about what? Okay, he's talking about trials, troubles, difficulties. And then he says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. What temptation is he talking about there? He's talking about temptation to do wrong. And so we need to clarify that, okay? The first part is basically dealing with troubles and trials. The second temptation, seen in verse 12 through 15, same word in the original language, is that idea of, okay, it's a different type of temptation. Clarify this. Make sure they understand. And the word will show up several times in the New Testament. You're going to find the word temptation. And it could refer to either one. How are you going to know which one it's referring to? Context. Context is critical. The context in this verse clearly makes identifies. We are enticed by the temptation to do wrong. 
He uses the word tempted and enticed in the same sentence. And so it helps us to clarify. And he says in this passage, which defines how it works, he says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust, is enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err my beloved. And, and he says, okay, here's the way it works. That the idea of enticed literally means to bait the hook. It's the idea of, okay, we've got something here to draw and to lure somebody in. So how does that help you to understand how temptation works? When you think about the idea of, okay, temptation to sin is like the worm on the hook. What does that tell me about temptation? What's that? It looks good. Anything else it tells you? Oh, it can be powerful. Yeah, good. Anything else it tells you? All of this is correct. Okay. You can't see the hook, which means the dangers are usually, they're hidden, okay? Are dangers there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you look at it and go, okay, uh, just as bait lures the fish, temptation is alluring. That's true. Would you agree that a lot of the things you struggle with, it kind of looks good? Okay. Um, the bait is usually something attractive, appealing. Um, the ultimate danger or end is hidden. Okay. I think you would agree that that's true. The bait is really a trap, not intended for my good. But remember, the, when you fall into diverse temptations or trials, are they good for us in the first part? Yeah, those are the good ones. These are the bad ones. It is often a deadly trap. So we look at that and say, okay, that's true, that's true. That's what this passage is talking about. He's giving the distinction. Hey, friend, when you fall into trials and troubles... Okay, you know, they, they can be for your benefit. But when you are tempted to do wrong, and can I ask you, can I throw this out, ask you this question? Do trials and troubles carry with them a temptation to do wrong? Yeah, they can, they can, right? They can, they can, you can have a dual one. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But do you, you ever see one of these things? It's called the alligator snapping turtle. Freshwater southern southeastern United States can get up to 250 pounds, and the reason that this this animal is so effective in its hunting, it lays at the bottom of the river, it lays at the bottom of the lake, and it has a special feature in its mouth on its tongue. The special feature is you can see on the right hand bottom picture, its its tongue at the very tip, it has these pinkish, uh, you know, appendages that look like a worm that are floating, and it just lays there, opens up its mouth, the fish thinks it's a worm, and when the fish gets too close, gotcha, okay? Isn't that the way temptation is described in this text? It's that same thing. It's that same idea. And so we've already mentioned, and you want to just identify, um, and I don't think we can conclude. I don't think by looking in this text, it talks about one being outside and one being inside, and that's a norm. But are, can we conclude that all trials are always from without and all temptations are always from within? We know that that's a, that's a general truth, but can temptations even come from outside of you? They can be friends. They can be other people. And sometimes the trials, could they be struggles within? Like an inside body trial? Like an illness? Okay, 
And so we want to say, we want to help them define a trial or a difficulty. Okay, it could be physical, social, whatever. A suggestion or a desire to do wrong. That's our distinction between the two temptations in James chapter 1. In modern English, we typically, when we read the word temptation, we now, in modern day, we think of the, the, uh, the second one here, the dangerous bait, the allurement. And we usually def- uh, make the difference, like in James 1, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, we usually call them trials. And in our modern use of English, that makes better sense to us that we do that. But at times, the Bible, you'll find both senses of the word temptation. And so you'll have to say, okay, when I'm reading the passage and I'm reading some of those New Testament verses that talk about temptation, okay, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Which one is it? Okay, well, we're back to what we said, okay? We, we're going to make that comment that when we look at that passage, let's make sure we look at context. Even external, and we, let's make an observation here, external tests or trials are often accompanied by a suggestion to do wrong. Uh, let's see if I can illustrate this way. Stephen is martyred. It's in Acts chapter 7. And as a result of his martyrdom, an an external trial, a difficulty, a challenge to the church, very, very serious, Uh, a good thing comes out of this. They are forced to get out of Jerusalem to go into all the world, and it's a very good thing, okay? The trial produced good results for Christianity. Could, could there have been a temptation amongst the believers to do wrong? What, what, in this case, what could somebody have been tempted to? to do that would have been wrong amongst the church believers? Revenge. revenge. I didn't even think of revenge. That's true. Revenge against the people. What's that? Yeah, don't even do anything. Don't even do anything. Give up. Quit. Okay. Let's take this one. Okay. The storm on the Sea of Galilee. This one you, you can relate to. In fact, how many storms were there that the disciples were with Jesus or in the boats? Let's put it that way. One time? Two times, two times, okay. They occurred twice in their lives. The one time Jesus is with them, the other time, where's Jesus when they're in the storm? He's on the shore doing what? He's, he's praying for them. He's praying through the night. And he comes to them, he walks on the water. It was very serious. You all know it was serious because it gives the idea a great storm. They even feared for their lives. And what was the occupation of the majority of them? They're fishermen. Okay, so it's really, really serious. And uh, the intent was to show how great Christ was. These are those trials, those difficulties that they were placed in by the will of God that was going to be for their growth, and it was good. What could be the potential temptations to do wrong? You're in the boat. You're there. Could you have been tempted to say or do something that would be offensive to God? Uh, isn't that what they did to Jesus when he was sleeping? Didn't they say, don't you care? And they made an accusation against Jesus Christ that, that even though there's a trouble, could we respond in the middle of a trouble with the trial? Could an accompanying temptation to do evil come with it? Yeah, yeah, they could attack uh, me. This is me. None of you would do this. I would have been really upset with the other, the other 11 Roman, you know, do something more. You know, do you, you've got to do, you've got to, you know, you've got to work harder to get us out of here. Come on, guys. 
It would have been frustration with other people. See, you wouldn't do that, okay? Me, I would. I'd start, you know, finding fault in their, in their efforts. They, they'd stop following Christ. That could have been a temptation, or you can add other things. Could there be, in the midst of somebody having cancer, could there be temptations to sin? Like what? Anger, bitterness, shortness, temper. Somebody who's out of work. Could they, could they, that's a trial. Could that turn into a temptation to sin? To do what? Steal. Okay. The same, you get a car accident. Could you have a temptation in your reaction at the time of the accident? Yeah. What about COVID? COVID is a trial that comes upon us that you know, the Lord can use. But is there accompanying temptations attitude-wise? Any of you experience any temptations with COVID? Any frustrations, discouragement, anger, frustration with people? You know, we know it's the government's fault that we have this. You know. The world has told us it's the, govern- govern- the government's fault, you know. If there wasn't for them, you know, nobody would have died. You know, that fault-finding thing. It's just amazing how this happens. And so, you know, there could be temptations that come along with the trial. And so that's what makes it really a bit of a challenge. And Bob, you said it comes back to determining context. Make sure when you're studying the passage, you go through context and look at this whole idea of what temptation is there, which one. Because in the Old English, they use the same word for both a trial and a test for allurement. You may need to explain that based on the Bible that they're using as far as the translation. That'd be very helpful. Here he's going to get into a section that we're not going to get through completely, but it's the reasons that temptations come. They develop it. I'm going to be frank. I wouldn't develop it quite the same way, and yet I found it very interesting. And so you have the material. You're taking them through the Bible study. Make sure you follow through and understand. Pastor Art, in the notes he gave me, he said, I have no clue what they're asking at this question on a couple occasions in this section. And it took me a long time to figure out what could be said. So let's go through as far as we can for the next few minutes. And by the way, just, you know, if we go along, don't worry. My watch says that we are stuck at quarter of six. My watch stopped working after the morning service. I reset it earlier, and I'm going by this watch. Uh, Um, And it's been there for the last hour or more. Um, So where did temptation come from? If you're going to answer this, you who, with with your great Bible knowledge, where did temptation come from? The history of it. Where did temptation come from? Okay. When? Okay, let's make sure we we understand this. Somebody just asked me this last week. They asked me this question about this very issue. We know God created the world, and when he created, everything was... Okay, it was good. He says it was good. It was perfect, okay, without sin. And he's working his way through. And at the end of the seventh day, it says that God saw everything that he created, and it was good, okay? And so where did it come from? Where did temptation come from? In that temptation, in creation week, I should say right after creation week is is a better definition. I I need to clarify that. Um, Right after creation week, and sometime in creation, we don't know when, what did God create during creation? The angels. Okay, we don't know when. Okay, the, the Bible doesn't expressly say day one, day two, day three. We don't know when Satan and the angels were created. But Satan was created and he was good. Okay, God saw everything. And so they are good up until day seven. 
How do we know that? God saw all that he created and it was good. Okay, so we end chapter 2 of Genesis. Everything's great. Everything's good. We still don't know. We get in chapter 3. How many days between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3? We don't know. We don't know if there was days. We don't know if it was minutes. We don't know if it was hours. We know it wasn't long enough for them to have a baby because they don't have a baby until later on. But they were created with the ability and the maturity physically to have a child, and they were told, make babies. Okay, So it happened, in what we think is it happened pretty quickly after creation was done. That Satan rebels, a number of angels follow him. His heart, his evil heart, determines he's going to destroy creation. He's going to rebel against God, including... Let's, let's go after the chiefest of the physical creation, mankind. Let's go after people. Let's go after Adam and Eve. And so he attacks them in the Garden of Eden. We know the story. They succumb to the temptation. Eve is deceived. Adam open-mindedly, op- wide eyes open, he chooses to disobey. And so they're affected in all their offspring. And so temptation is continued, and it basically comes, as history goes, through three ultimate sources. Temptation today comes from three ultimate sources. It comes from Satan or the spiritual evil realm around us. I'm going to, they're all three S's. What's the other strong provision of temptation? Yeah, it's, it's sitting really close to you. Some of you are looking at your spouse. <laughs> okay. It's self. Okay. The source is self. Okay, it comes from with our sin nature. What's the other major contributing factor to temptations? Satan, self, the world. For the S sake, society. Okay, society, the world about us. And we know that this is true. This is where most temptation. Now, in the study, he's going to do it a little bit different. Okay, they're going to get into it, but in the study, what they do is they ask this question. For centuries, people have wondered, why would a good God allow temptation? He certainly could have created Adam and Eve without the possibility of sin. Is that true? Would you agree that that's a fact? God could have created people so that they would never, ever sin. As strange as it sounds, temptations to sin do show some benefits we enjoy. That's a strange statement. You've got to explain this statement in this Bible study. And the only way you're going to explain it is to follow through with these next few notes. Okay, let's just do the first one. We'll wrap up. Okay, temptations offer us the the opportunity to show love to God. They're a test of love. What we mean by that is this. God could have created mankind without temptations or the choice of giving in to temptations. And so you think about that, okay, he could have done it Okay, we answer that yes. If he had, okay, then think this through. If we had no ability to choose, we would have been robots in a moral sense. We would have had no opportunity to express, I love you, to God. It would would have been taken out of our hands. There would be no moral choice. We would have, then, then to say, okay, then we would have been loving God without any volition of our own. That would have made us just basically just like parts of creation that have no choice. The, let's take a step. We would not be moral creatures, but we've been amoral without ability to make a choice. 
Think about if we had no ability to make moral choice, our love of God would have been involuntary. That idea that we would have been forced to love God. We would automatically love him. We would have no choice in this matter. You don't want to marry somebody who says, hey, do you choose to love me? I've got no choice. You would say, no, no, that's, that's not, you know, I have to. You want them to say, I want you. I love you. And so God gave us a choice. He gave us a moral compass that says, here's what we should be doing. He gave us the desire. He gave everything Adam and Eve had, could want. He was providing for them. And he gave them a choice. And they chose to rebel. And as a result, this love would not be genuine in our hearts as we would have had no freedom to choose. And so in a, in a backwards way of looking at it, temptations do give us the opportunity to say, Lord, I choose to love you by rejecting this. And so there is a positive in that sense that that gives us that opportunity to reflect, to look at him. In fact, Psalms 97, that's quoted in your material. Those who love, you who love the Lord hate evil. How does it demonstrate this fact? It says not everyone automatically loves God. You catch that in those words? You who love the Lord, there's a condition here. Not everybody does. It's saying that those who love God hate evil. Remember that hate in the Old Testament has the idea of reject evil. It's saying in this passage, okay, that idea in contrast, there's those who have an active display of preference for God. I choose you. I want you. And so those who choose the Lord, what's their response? They hate evil. They choose not to do it. Because God wanted an intimate, genuine relationship with humans, he allows all people the opportunity to show their love towards him by giving them the choice to reject temptations, which we could add to the back of that paragraph, can be strong and very appealing at times. There's one other time of history that this is going to come into play. And I close with this. There's going to be a time in history where everything will be perfect Everything will be provided. People who are born during that time will have to obey God. They will have to. He will rule with a... Do you know what time period I'm talking about? We're talking about the millennium. And he's going to make sure that everything is done. But at the end of the millennium, what does he do? He releases who from the bottomless pit? Satan is released. And what does Satan do to those people? He tempts them and he presents to them that idea that, you know, you can have a choice. You can have a choice to reject Christ. For hundreds of years, they've been taken care of. There's been peace. Everything's been wonderful. But what is inside of people that Satan knows that's there and God allows it to be there and it's going to be tested at the very end? Choice. Self-will. The self-choice. Will I, and people have to choose, follow Satan or follow Christ? Can you imagine what Satan's going to say? Yeah. He doesn't give you a choice. He doesn't give you a choice. He doesn't give you a choice. If you follow me, I'll do so much more for you. He's going to be the ultimate politician who has the commercials of how he will solve everything. And God is going to allow people to choose. Why? Because you choose, he knows, that to come from your heart... Do you love me or don't you love me? You have to make a choice. 
So that's where temptation, we can say, what is one positive? It helps us to make a choice. Father, I pray, help us in our lives as we think through this in-depth, deep subject right now. This isn't, this, some of this material, I'm surprised, is for baby Christians. And for here, the mature ones, it's stuff that we have to wrestle with and think through. And help us to think through in a way that we can present it to be helpful to others and encourage them. Thank you for these folk, for their fellowship and their friendship. Give us a great week in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.